Welcome to In the Envelope, an awards podcast. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage. I'm here to give you a front row seat to the Emmys, Oscars, SAG, and Tony's races. Who is in the running? What makes an award-worthy performance? And what are the secrets to giving one? intimate, inspirational conversations with some of today's most talented stars provide you, dear listener, the kind of craft and career advice that could win you a statue of your own, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. With perseverance and very, very, very thick skin, It's possible really for anyone who takes themselves, their talent, and a zeal for getting better very seriously. Wait, could you reintroduce yourself? Yes. And your title and everything? Um, I'm Caitlin Watkins, and I'm the marketing designer and occasional photographer Indeed. at, at Backstage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and responsible for all of our lovely podcast art and imagery. That's true. And fan of Tim Blake Nelson? Yes. <laughs> Today's guest? Always oh, the best. Yeah, why is it? So you were telling me. So why is he, why are you a fan? Um, well, I've always been a fan of. I mean, I think, like, everyone ever since I saw... I first saw him in Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou, probably. Yes, yes. One of my favorite films. One of my, yeah. Truly. And his character in particular. It's hilarious. Like, the... What is it? We thought you was a toad. Yes. Yes. I love... I don't know. I quote that all the time. So, yeah. Totally. There's something about his... Because he's such a great character actor. Exactly. And... He's There's sort of, just no one like him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's sort of what comes to mind when I think of character actors. Right. Yeah. And, I mean, you, I don't know. He's just very unique in what he brings to totally. the films that he's in. His voice, his face, and he completely knows how to use that. Right. And he's so good at, there's all, there's such a, like... Even in that, even in his character, No Brother Art Thou or Buster Scruggs. Or, Buster Scruggs last year, amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and he came in to backstage into this conference room. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, but in those, there's such a sensitivity to the characters too. There's such an earnestness. Yeah. Mm. He that he, you can tell he's really worked on the depth. I feel like a lot of character actors sometimes it feels very. Mm insincere or something like yeah, not as hammy. yeah yeah whereas he he they're very big and That's like true. ridiculous characters but there's still some quietness to it there's a t- we feel tenderness for him i think he's yeah. one of those like we uh are instinctively protective of him he's yeah. instinctively likable or something right and yeah. you can see him thinking you can see yeah. like it's almost yeah. like you can see the history of these characters somehow in the way that he oh. shows up i love that i love that He's an um, artist. He's, he's like an one of those yeah. actors that was like a real, true, loves the craft artist. Yeah, which is what we love at Backstage we love that. and on this podcast. Yeah. Anyway, 
Thanks. Yeah, of course. See you, see you later. See ya. Hello, hello. This is Jamie, the producer of the podcast. And I just want to take some time to tell you about the sister podcast to In the Envelope, which is VO School. This is a podcast that I produce and host, and it is devoted entirely to voiceover. So if you're looking to get into the voiceover industry, you should check it out. That's VO School, found on iTunes, Stitcher, all the usual places. And it's hosted by me. Each episode covers a different subject, and we go through the business, the craft, the marketing, the blood, sweat and tears that is creating a voiceover career. So check us out, the VO School podcast, available now. Tim Blake Nelson is what's known as a character actor, stealing the show in countless films and TV shows, everything from Oh Brother Where Art Thou to the title role in last year's The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. The Oklahoma native and Juilliard alum is also a writer-director-producer, helming The Grey Zone, Leaves of Grass, Anesthesia, Socrates, and more. Tim currently stars as Looking Glass in HBO's new Damon Lindelof drama Watchmen, based on the superhero comic and appears in Amazon Studios' The Report and Warner Brothers' upcoming Just Mercy. We welcome to the podcast, Tim Blake Nelson. Welcome. Thank you. To the podcast. Backstage loves you. We've, we've talked to you plenty, and I know that you've got some good... Uh, we're all about the career advice and the craft right. know-how. It's sort of my mission to get you guys to talk about these things and to talk about your process. I'll be happy to talk about were. anything. Uh, <laughs> Good. Including aspects of my personal life if they're relevant sure. and and, uh, and don't um, cause injury to anyone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to ask, actually, what is your life in New York? Like, you were just saying you you like living here. Do you, what is your... Um, do you see a lot of theater? I do, but not as much as I wish. Okay. Yeah. Actually, last night is a really good example. I was going to go with my wife to see a show at NYU mm-hmm. where she's a professor. And we have uh, three kids. One's in college, but he's home for a, a fall break. Mm-hmm. So all three boys were at home, and oh, cool. there were some issues with one of them. And we just had to make the call that I one of us needed to stay home. Okay. and. And since she teaches down there, uh, she was the one who needed to be there. Gotcha. And so I didn't get to go out last night. And that often happens. I, It takes a lot um, for me to get out of the house with the boys, with my children. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, I see theater. I see everything at Soho Rep. Oh, cool. Which is um, not only my favorite theater in New York, but I'm mm-hmm. also on the board and have been since the mid-'90s. Mm-hmm. And I go to the public and Manhattan Theater Club and New York Theater Workshop, mainly the off-Broadway houses, not-for-profit. Yeah. And you just had a play at Public Theater. Yeah, I had uh, Socrates with a wonderful cast um, at the public, uh, led by Michael Stuhlbarg as Socrates. Um, I definitely want to get into it with your your writing process and all of that. Are you hoping to write more, more theater? Is it is there a distinction between the screen and the stage? There certainly is. And initially I was much more interested in writing plays uh-huh. simply because I found it easier as an actor to write dialogue than to uh-huh. describe 
gotcha. what pictures were going to look like. Hmm. And really, the job of a screenwriter is to, to, to furnish a blueprint hmm. for photography with sound. Cool. Uh, Furnish of a course, of course. There's plenty of dialogue in screenplays, sure. and and most dramas and comedies and thrillers and even action movies are led by characters and who they are and what they want. Mm-hmm. So it's also very, very much actor based. But I think that plays are more purely that yeah. in general. I'm About speaking that. very generally. Yeah. Because there are certain highly conceptual theatrical experiences that Hmm. aren't about character. And and there are certainly movies that are dialogue-driven and Mm -hmm. completely about character. Mm -hmm. So I'm really speaking only generally. And, And initially, I was more interested in how dialogue reveals that. Yeah. Because I'm an actor. Exactly. Yeah, your acting must inform all of this. Do you ever Certainly. like like talk aloud the lines that you're writing so that you I, can kind of act them? And... I say them in my head. Okay. Um, but no, I don't. I I always do. However, with the plays, have close friends over to get it. Yeah. And because I'm an actor and have a lot of friends who are actors. I get really good casts to come to my sure. living room. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. And, and, Do you want and to name read names? My stuff. Well, I, you know, Michael Stuhlbarg. Yeah. <clears throat> nobody ever read the role of Socrates but Michael Wow. from the moment I wrote it. Uh, and that's a, an incredible luxury that's to cool. be able to call Michael up. And, and he's done that with several of my plays. The Gray Zone, as an example. Uh-huh. The first reading of that was of the first act of the play. Because uh, I, I was quite insecure about it. Okay. Uh, and just didn't know whether the language worked. Mm. My approach to how the characters spoke to one another. Yeah. Uh, and so I called up Lois Smith, who oh lived gosh. down the block. Oh my gosh! And said, "Will you host a reading?" And um, I brought a half a case of wine over and a bunch of actors, including Michael Stuhlbarg mm-hmm. and. Also, Chris McCann. Uh, mm-hmm. I think Jake Weber, Henry Stram, uh, Tim Hopper. You know, a good oh, wow. group of, of of New York actors. Yeah, uh, and um, and my wife, Lisa Benavides, and we read the mm-hmm. first act of the play. Uh, and I always do that with my plays. Okay, yeah, it's almost a not a first step, but it's one of the first steps of developing it. Yeah, and there's just no pressure. I was going to say, though, but those are big people. Like, Well, but I have they're, – they're friends. Yeah. And I have and, – and we've all grown up together. Michael uh-huh. Stuhlbarg and my wife and I were at Juilliard together. Ah, uh, okay. And Lois yeah. taught us at Juilliard. Oh, wow. And so we were all peers, not Lois. Uh-huh. Lois is on that level of her own. Sure. But it's – uh, yeah. They're the best people at that stage. Sure. In terms of responding to the to the work, I, I don't. They're unafraid in terms of being critical, mm. and okay. when an actor tries something on and it doesn't feel right, and you ask them, they'll they'll let you know, and they'll let you mm-hmm. know why. Yeah, in often very 
lucid and right. and uh, convincing ways. You all speak the same language, yeah. kind of. Yeah, yeah. And it's that safe space that's kind of required to to take risks, but also to give and receive criticism. Yeah, which is much better than a stage reading. Sure. So what mm. what delineates mm. the living room reading mm-hmm. is that it's really only the participants. And then the only exception there was Lois Smith, but she's Lois Smith and yeah. she's a friend and is an incredibly wise yeah. and zealous critic, but not in a destructive way. Uh-huh. So it's sort of the audience is removed. Completely. Which can help. Yeah, yeah. yeah which helps with that process before you then introduce the audience, which it's safe to say is its own scene partner, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's usually how it goes. I'm curious to know how, where do these ideas come from? I know that um, you, were, you studied classics at Brown, mm-hmm. which must have, and philosophy, and, and you, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote this Socrates play years ago. In 19, I think, 86... I tried to write a play about Socrates okay. yeah, and found that the story was just too big, too unwieldy. Mm-hmm. And also, I just didn't have the, the knowledge of Greek history. Uh-huh. In spite of the fact that I'd studied this stuff in college, I didn't have the knowledge of Greek history really to be able to write this. And, and I didn't have the ability as a writer to sure. structure it, and I didn't have the understanding of politics to to write it, mm-hmm. or ethics. Uh-huh. I, I I was just fresh out of school, and I think when you're fresh out of undergraduate, yeah, you've really been given. Well, my mother had this really good metaphor. She said, "Your whole life is about learning, and and college teaches you if 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 the metaphor is that that learning is this." experience in a restaurant where you're just ingesting all Ah. these different uh, foods and tastes, Mm -hmm. then college is teaching you how to read the menu. Oh, how to read the menu. Cool. And I, and I, so all I did was know how to read the menu. I didn't have any experience about what, Mm. uh, how you interact with the waiter or what, (laughs) any, anything. (laughs) Yeah. Or. Which comes with time. Yeah. And and so 30 years later, uh-huh. I found myself interested once more in sure. trying to write this. Wow. Yeah. And it was much easier with three decades of experience. It's the experience, yeah. Which you would also say it was worth the attempt at the time. It just wasn't – it can't come to fruition because of that. I suppose it was worth the attempt, but I got to say it was – so humbling that I almost ah. stopped writing. Okay. <laughs> wow. Okay. And I know that huh. you like to orient some of these podcasts around uh-huh. uh, advice. Yes. <laughs> uh, and so even though you didn't ask, I would say to anybody who's <laughs> listening to this who's wanting to write and direct, uh-huh. um, the, the, you need patience with yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm. And you need belief in yourself yeah. uh, that comes with an understanding that initially it's going to be very difficult mm. and humiliating <laughs> and demeaning. Yeah. But that, that's the way it is for everyone starting out. Yeah. You and you've yeah. got to stick with it. Mm. Yeah. 
it maybe makes it easier to go into it knowing the humiliation and the failure are there. Yeah, and so then I went and started writing other mm -hmm. stuff closer to me yeah. that wasn't as research-intensive. Less ambitious. Less ambitious yeah. and, and, um, and, and, and that were just manifestly easier stories to tell. Gotcha. Then that maybe that's an important kind of piece of advice too in the early career stages. But it don't bite off more than you can chew because you could get really humbled to the point of quitting mm -hmm. if you really try to take on something that's too out of your league or too big or something. Certainly, and 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 you've also got to understand even the stuff that is within your reach mm. Mm. that you might. Um, turn into a really extraordinary narrative or iteration is is mostly going to be rejected by people. And so mm. it, it just takes a kind of tenacity and belief in yourself mm. and, and uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, a refusal to go away. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, it's really perseverance. It's really just sticking with it. Yes. Yeah. And just and knowing too that it's sort of an investment, right? Like you're saying about the time and experience, by sticking with it, you just you will get better at it. So the if it's not turning out the way that you like at first, it's because you got to hone your craft more and Yes, that's and part of it. and I don't I'm not really sure that as an example in the in 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 if I juxtapose my actor training with what I know about with what I know about writing schools, mm. uh, other than the Iowa Poetry Workshop, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not. Sh I, I think we're very. I think we're at a very early stage in terms of writer training in this in this country. Gotcha. From what I've from what I've gathered, mm. um, and so really a good deal of. Uh, one's own progress is really in the doing. Gotcha. Much more than in the schooling. And yeah. I wouldn't discourage yeah. anyone from going to a graduate level writing program or mm -hmm. taking writing classes sure. as an undergraduate mm -hmm. or even being in writing circles or writing workshops as a professional. Yeah. I think all that's great. But I do believe that in writing or with writing, much more so than with acting or even film directing. Mm. The, the, most learning happens by doing yeah. and also by reading other people's works. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And, and watching other people's, mm. watching productions of other people's works. Yeah, and the classes are maybe more of a, the, certainly that idea of reading the menu and getting some, it's almost like polishing, like getting a little couple skills here and there. But the real journey is, yeah, through like consuming the media and pr trying to produce the media. That's what I think. Now, sure. I'm sure if you sure. had um, one of any number of wonderful writing instructors in here, hmm. uh, they would explain to me every way to Sunday why I'm wrong. <laughs> sure. And, and I would gladly hear that, and, hmm. and, and I'm sure uh, it would be valent. But I do think it's mostly in the doing. I yeah. just do. And I love this idea of the stuff that's close to home, as I think what you said. Socrates, maybe ancient Greece, maybe isn't. But 
I'm fascinated by how you've you've created these movies that are about uh, kind of a domestic drama in Tulsa. Uh, then it's the Holocaust and your Jewish background maybe inspired mm-hmm. that. And anesthesia is sort of about life in New York. Mm-hmm. And I'm fascinated by where were the initial seeds of those ideas and why. Because co- taken together, it's almost like, how would you know that's this, that's all one person? Well, I have God, uh, what you referred to as a domestic drama in Tulsa, which is almost right. It's it's in uh-huh. Kingfisher, Oklahoma, which is in the western part of the state. Oh, right. But, but, uh, so it's a small town story. Mm-hmm. That really stemmed from a sermon I heard um, one uh, Yom Kippur uh, in Tulsa uh, about Abraham and Isaac and Sarah. Mm. And the rabbi told the story of Abraham and Isaac, but he really focused on Sarah's Mm. place in that story. And I just started thinking about Isaac, Mm. and that led me to spin this story uh, in small town Oklahoma, about this boy who witnesses a, a murder, mm-hmm. and a sheriff's coming to terms with the existence of a god who would allow that to happen, mm. which is an age-old sure. narrative uh, conceit. I think we're there. there Man, we're we're always grappling with that and telling yeah. stories that ask how could there be a God if and then totally crisis and so of this faith. was yeah the yeah. crisis of faith and this was one of those mm. and it was my second play mm-hmm. and like with my first play which was called Cyrus and which was uh, produced at Juilliard during my fourth year of drama training and hasn't been done anywhere else. Mm. Uh, it was workshopped at Seattle Rep, but nobody's ever produced that play. Mm. Um, so this was my first play. I re- originally wrote it as a play and then made it into a movie with mm. my brother, Mike, producing it. Um, but I wrote it the same way I had written my first play, which was to just start out with a set of characters mm-hmm. and think like an actor. Ah, cool. And let them lead me into a narrative. Yeah, to see what happens. And that ended up being a kind of unwieldy thing. Uh huh. But once it felt like it had a full length shape, hmm. then I came in and changed it and shaped it and nuanced aspects of the character hmm. to try uh, characters to try and make it make sense as uh, a cohesive economical narrative. Yeah. And that's generally the way that I started out writing. Mm -hmm. Just let characters lead the story wherever it was going to go. That's so cool. And then go back and through revision, shape it into something integral that had a beginning, a middle and an end. Sure. A central character with a predicament and a journey. Mm. And all the basics that uh, a, a narr- Western narrative needs okay. that go all the way back to Aristotle. Right, right. So character-based. Yeah, character-based. Yeah, yeah. I likened it to if just making a, a sculpture and, and 
imagining you're going to find a figure in there mm. and and shaping and shaping and shaping but really not knowing where you're headed maybe not even knowing whether it was going to be a man or a woman sure yeah uh and or, or an a person active or in repose yeah. uh hmm. something you're going to um paint or hmm. Leave in its original material, um, wow, unpainted, yeah. you know, but just letting it lead you. And then as it leads you, starting to impose some of the conventions, conventions and rules. Yeah. yeah. God, I love that. And I'm not sure that's a viable way of working. And maybe somebody who teaches writing mm. would say, yes, of course he thinks that. He never took a damn writing class. <laughs> um, and, and that would just disprove my theory that you learn a lot by doing well, and reading. Yeah. But it's it's I think that must be so informed by the acting and the acting training and the and the on the job experience there of like that must be there are a million different ways to write, but it sounds like that one, the character based way, is because you can put your you're good at putting yourself in the shoes of fictional people. Yes. And then figuring it out. Yeah. And a character can start in a room and they leave that room and yeah. where do they end up going and whom do they meet and Yeah. And just And what do uh, they know? Allowing that to happen. Yeah. Do they keep secrets from you? Do your characters do things that you're you're shocked to find them doing? <laughs> I suppose so, yeah. Um, I never have thought of it that way, but I certainly do say, oh, my God, I, I can't believe that happened. But, of course, mm. it makes complete sense. Mm. And I remember there's a character in Eye of God who kills himself. Mm. And the idea just came to me very late one night, I think at about one in the morning, and I just got up out of bed and and wrote that completely into the play. Wow. And 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 backtracked mm. and set it up so that it would make sense. Wow. And that's what finally allowed the play to have a trajectory that worked. Hmm. It came wow. to you in a dream. Well, not kind quite. <laughs> it's stewing in your brain as yeah. you write, right? And then it pops, ideas pop in. Yes. And you said this was maybe early in the, in, for your earlier works, and then did that process change? Well, Socrates in the gray zone mm-hmm. had their own stories. Uh-huh. And I saw, the, the gray zone came about because I was writing about my family yeah. escaping Nazi Germany. My, my mother's family, not mine, obviously. And I failed at that play. Uh, it just didn't – I worked on it for over a year, mm. and it didn't seem anything other than another mawkish Holocaust story. Huh. And so I put it aside and thought, well, I've just burned a year. Okay. And And I just kept researching because I'd done all this research. Right. I'd read thousands of pages. And I had read a lot of Primo Levi, and I there was this mm-hmm. one r- somewhat slim volume of essays, uh, slim but dense. Sure. Um, called The Drowned and the Saved. And there was an essay in there called The Gray Zone okay. about the Zonder Commandos, mm-hmm. the Jews in the death camps who – were co-opted into helping out in the extermination process in exchange for extended life. Mm-hmm. 
and I, I never even knew about them. Okay, yeah. And I said to myself, gotcha. well, there's the That's story it. that I've, I've wanted to be writing. Okay. And I'd just done a Carol Churchill play the year before mm-hmm. uh, called Mad Forest with the wonderful director Mark Wing Davey. And so I was very interested in her approach to playwriting, very influenced by that. Yeah. (coughs) And also by Mark's lean, cold aesthetic. Ooh. And that informed the way I set about writing the play. That's so cool. And I happened to have been working on a Peter Parnell play at Playwrights Horizons in which I was playing this Polish character who wasn't Jewish but was obsessed with the Holocaust. And all of it kind of came together, and backstage of that play, I really started writing The Gray Zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which was a revision of the existing stuff you had or more of a start no, from scratch? No, completely start from really? scratch. Complete start from but scratch. But that's so cool that the, the projects you happen to be working on were speaking to you were speaking to that and helped inspire that. They always do. I mean, I think huh. uh, Terrence Malick told me that that narratives should be like these stews and mm-hmm. that it's it's on the stove and mm-hmm. it's at a it's at a simmer. Mm-hmm. And you have these, these, uh, all these different ingredients and flavors, and they're moving around and coming to the surface mm-hmm. and then submerging. And, and so what I took from that, in addition to what a narrative can end up being once you've finished it, mm-hmm. is that the process can be that way too. Okay. And so whatever is gotcha. going on in my life when I'm writing, rather than hide from it or try to shut it out, mm. I let it all in. Yeah, those ingredients too. Yeah, and yeah. trust that they can inform and help. Cool. And it's key that it's simmering because time is like an important part of that process. I hadn't I thought of it that way, but yes. Like, and of course, Terrence Malick was telling me uh, that, was using that metaphor to explain why I'd been cut mostly out of his movie. Oh but, uh, <laughs> and I learned oh, that he no. was telling all the other actors the same thing, but I think it's still an apt metaphor. Totally. So yeah. if you go see Thin Red Line, I'm a little piece of, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm one single ingredient that bubbles to the surface for a moment and then submerges. So okay. you, can, you can see you're, me there for a moment. You're definitely an ingredient, yeah. yeah. But it's also the sculpture thing of, like, you, you're cutting stuff out of the marble. Yeah. So it's the same idea. But look, I mean, I write. I don't really yet consider myself a writer. Mm. You're first and foremost an actor. I think so, and maybe a filmmaker. Uh huh. Yeah. And that, and that. There's a lot of overlap between those terms. There, yeah, there is. There's yeah. a lot of. Over- well, no, I don't think that actors are filmmakers. I think, as actors, we get to be actors. So yeah. I would never, as an actor, appropriate that term gotcha. for myself. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Happy to be an actor when I'm an actor on a on a movie. Now, a couple of times, I've acted in a movie and I've also written and directed it, but that's different. Well, and I love this idea of of getting inspiration for the writing and directing by from the acting jobs and like all of your because you are mainly an actor. Is it also safe to say that you work quite consistently? 
Do you, I mean, do you go through the same dry spells as, as every other actor? Because it doesn't seem that way. Um, I haven't really had a significant dry spell since about 2000. Just not to sound obnoxious about it. I mean, I'm I'm a character actor, so right. It it's it, I I have a lot of opportunities, and sometimes, sure, I'm working, hmm. but I'm playing. Um, you know, I've I've spent a lot of time as an ancillary character, sure, or what um, uh, a friend of mine calls a hallway part. I've done a lot of hallway parts. Ah, okay, where you are. A character, a main character, needs to walk down a hallway to get between point A and B. You're there. And you're there for the walk <laughs> to give them a necessary piece of information. Sure. And then the camera continues on with them and you peel off. Uh, so I spent <laughs> okay. a good 10 years from 1990 to to yeah. 2000. In those. In those types of roles. Which yeah. you consider, is that, I'm I'm fascinated to know what character actor means to you. Is that different from hallway actor or hallway character? Oh, sure. Um, well, a character actor certainly can play hallway parts. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, character actor, what is a character actor? Certainly an actor like Gene Hackman is a leading man who's also a character actor. Gotcha. There's an overlap there, too. So there's certainly an overlap. Okay. I'm yeah. not a Gene Hackman. I'm a character actor hmm. who... To me, a character actor is an actor who's, particularly in movies, mm. whose presence in a movie is more about the character they're playing than it is about their persona as an actor. Oh, okay. Okay. Their so I a, play okay. parts, like I'm in this movie right now called Just Mercy. Yes. And I play a character in there, hopefully anyway, I am lost. You disappear. So I yeah. disappear into that character. Yes. And yeah. there's no aspect of watching the performance, or there's very little aspect of watching the performance, hopefully, right. that's about, oh, that's Tim yeah. Blake Nelson. Totally. It's okay. about you're seeing the character. Now, the leads in the movie are Michael, Michael B. Jordan, Jamie Foxx, yeah. and Brie Larson. Mm -hmm. And they're fantastic. Yes. And I would also argue that all three of them lose themselves in, that, in, the, in their characters. Mm -hmm. But they're leading actors yeah. in that you never, no matter how extraordinary they are, <laughs> they're, they're, they're such high wattage stars right. that you always at some level know that you're watching these extraordinary lead actors yeah assay these parts right right and it's almost part of the whole entity. and that's all power to them i don't i couldn't heap enough praise on all three of those people totally Totally. And but, same with George Clooney, you know, all the other leading people yeah. around whom I've had the privilege uh, to work. Yeah. But you don't go see a movie um, or people don't go see a movie outside of my family because it's a, it's a Tim Blake Nelson movie. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. The way that they see a movie because it's a Michael B. Jordan movie yes. or a Jamie Foxx movie or a Brie Larson movie or a yeah. – 
um, a George Clooney movie. Right. You're not going to forget in the movie watching that you're watching George Clooney. Because you can't. You don't want they're to. Too, yeah. They're too much of who they are. Sure. And, and, yeah. and their careers have been about burnishing that. Uh-huh. Well, and isn't the movie itself, like, the, from a production standpoint, you're casting movie stars because that is that is part of it. Mm-hmm. Like, you want – it's a draw. It's a box office draw. Right. It's also, like, you could cast – yes, you could cast unknown people in, in those parts, and, and they would probably be amazing, too. But part of, the, part of the appeal is to see the wattage that you're talking about. Yeah. I think that, ideally, a lead actor is going to be most happy – and most gratified or at the top of their career feel, all right, it's it's going the mm. way that I want it. When uh-huh. somebody says, let's get George Clooney for this part. To lend his name. Because not to lend his name. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think that would make him happy. But I, I think because he can carry this movie. Gotcha. He can center this movie. Mm-hmm. And the audience is going to want to watch him for two hours. Yeah. And identify with him yeah. and follow him. Hmm. And I think what a character actor wants to hear is, let's get uh, Steve Buscemi mm-hmm. because he can pull this part off. Yeah. And I think that uh, what's important for character actors, which to me, I wouldn't want to be anything but. Uh, so I mm-hmm. – I, hmm. uh, Mercutio is a character actor. Yeah. And when Olivier was asked, well, what would you part would you want to play in uh, Romeo and Juliet? Mm-hmm. He said, well, Mercutio, he has all the best lines. Mm-hmm. That's often the case with character actors. Gotcha. So you have a lot of really interesting stuff to do as a character actor. Yes. Yeah. And that's why I love it. Mm-hmm. You can also do more movies as a character actor. And I love being on movie mm-hmm. sets. Yeah, cool. So you can do three or four movies a year as a character actor. Right. Um, okay. So it's what I want to be. Yeah. And I think it's what's important for character actors to remember. And I'm not a stay-in-your-lane kind of guy because, my gosh, no. yeah. if you want to be a leading man and you're a Gene Hackman hmm. uh, or a Jack Nicholson would be another example. Sure. And you can do both, and that's what you want. Yeah. And and you can make that happen. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Uh, hmm. But I I've seen a lot of character actors over the years get lost in despair over the fact that they go from set to set to set to set. Okay. And they're never one, two, or three on the call sheet, and right. it's not their movie. Mm-hmm. They're just playing these character roles. Hmm. Um, and it's not what they. One actor once said to me, "I don't want to be standing next to the guy. I want to be the guy." Hmm. And I think that can lead hmm. to not understanding how privileged it is just to be on the set at all as an actor. Sure. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And I've just I've 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 seen plenty of actors, peers of mine in mid career who've mm-hmm. looked around and, and 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 inexplicably said, Wait, this is all there is? And right. I wanna say to them, Are you kidding me? 
right. Are you kidding me? Yeah. This is, it doesn't get better than this. Right, right. Right, which is about defining what you what you want, right? Or um, not getting well in, stagnant in the movies in and and in television particularly the blandishments of it all, and hmm. the 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 constant, never ending reminders of status, ah, can really get the better of people. Wow, and okay. cause uh, people to lose perspective. Hmm. When, and, and, and you find people who said, look, all I want to do maybe, you know, is when they were just starting out, if they were 25, mm-hmm. all I want to do is play interesting parts, mm-hmm. just one interesting part a year. Sure, sure. In, on, on, you know, off-Broadway or in a movie right. or in a television show. That's all I want to do, and I want to make a living, right. which, of course, is oxymoronic because you need more than one part a year to make a living. But, right. Preferably but let's you're say, a living. yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly they're doing that mm-hmm. and much more. Yeah. Much, much more. And it's beyond what they ever could have imagined yeah. would have happened for them. Yeah. And all you see is anguish. Hmm. Yeah. The goalposts have changed. Yeah. And a lot of what fuels that anguish, I think, has to do with uh, a, a very status-oriented process How interesting. Yeah. in the movie business. Because you do walk onto a set as a character actor, and it's never your set. Right. It's The call sheet is numbered. Like yeah. It's a hierarchy. Yeah. And it's important to mm. not only to make peace with that, but understand that it's actually the best possible version Mm. for what you imagined your life could be. Yeah. Now, this is very easy for me to say because I'm five foot five and I've got a, uh, you know, I I don't have a face that you're going to put on the cover of magazines. And so I'm resolutely a character actor. Okay. So there was, you know, I've never been... um, I've never had to be disabused of the notion that I could be a lead. I never considered myself a, a, a leading actor. Okay. Uh, and so I've never really had that aspiration. Right. Your Yeah. Your goals are um, in keeping— I'm in, a supporting guy. Yeah. Like, you know Because I think those are that. the best parts. <laughs> exactly. I yeah. Mean, which, is, which is good. But you're right that there are a lot of people who—that's uh, not what they want, and so they feel stuck in that position. But or they've decided you. that suddenly it's not what they want. Right, 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 right. Because they've changes. gotten distracted by aspects of the the industry that really don't have much to do mm. with playing roles. With the craft, yeah. Yeah, and, and just maybe it's about reminding, maybe a good piece of advice is remind yourself of that being 25 and wanting only to be working and to be yes. playing cool parts. Yes. And keeping that kind of in mind and also if you're 25 and you're just starting out Mm. reminding yourself not to go away what do you mean i mean don't quit oh yeah persevere yeah yeah um yeah and character actors get more work with age anyway 
Ah, okay. <laughs> cool. That's just sort of a fact about character. Well, actors. I think it's what I've found. I don't want anyone listening to this to say, I'm, um, this guy <laughs> has this rosy approach to it all because he's had some degree of success. He doesn't know what it's like. Hmm. But I'm 55, and I certainly spent um, 10 years uh, before I started working in the way I work now. I mean, with right. the frequency I work now. Right. After four years of drama school. Right. So Totally. And rejection is something you're very familiar with. Yeah. It's an inevitable and, part yeah. of the... Yeah. You got to know that going into this career, too. Yeah, and also, and you, uh, I think another piece of advice that you've given us before is like make your own work. If maybe if you're frustrated with uh, the rejection and the amount of work you're getting, well, generating my own work, I think has been a for me anyway a sine qua non for every success I've had since Hmm. the year 2000 anyway. Mm -hmm. Because during the 1990s when I was really working only off-Broadway. I would do mm. a part in a movie every year and and maybe a guest spot on television every year, and and I certainly did a lot of commercials. But, gotcha. But really what I did was, was work at, at, at regionally and in uh, off-Broadway at mm-hmm. not-for-profit theaters. So uh, at Yale Rep... Uh, a couple of times, and then at um, New York Theater Workshop, Playwrights Horizon, mm-hmm. Soho Rep, Manhattan Theater Club, uh, and the public, uh, Shakespeare in the Park. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that, I was always generating my own material. I was always writing. Yeah. And so I had this side life. Yeah. First as a playwright, and then eventually, uh, thanks to my supreme luck at having a brother who was a a line producer in movies who saw a play of mine at Seattle Rep, I suddenly was given this opportunity to turn one of my movie, uh, one of my plays, into a a a low budget film. Mm -hmm. Um, I was able to to pursue a career that was more self-generating. Right. Which meant that I could wake up every day and instead of being beholden to agent, casting director, Mm -hmm. and a director liking me and allowing me to be in their project, for which I was always, of course, grateful. Mm -hmm. But instead of relying on that, that. I had something I could do every day Mm. that was my own pursuit that could advance my own interests totally. narratively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a storyteller, that yeah. was not yeah. under anyone's control but my own. Yeah. And anything you can do as uh, a, a young aspiring actor or writer, or yeah, artist, to, to seize control from others <laughs> in a constructive way, mm-hmm. not a spiteful way. Right. Right. But to seize control from others and have it. In your own hands, yeah. Um, the better off you'll be, and not just for the tangible results, but mm. also psychologically. 
Totally. It's therapeutic, right? To have another um, outlet. Yeah. It's like and, a creative outlet. And suddenly I found myself, because I was always writing, feeling better about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And feeling more hopeful. That's awesome. And I had this secret. Oh, cool. Which yeah. was I'm doing stuff and I have this play at home. Right. Nobody has seen. And boy, is it extraordinary. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and that just made me feel better about myself when sure. I would go into an audition. Right. So when I would go into an audition, I wouldn't think, I have to get this. Right. I would think, I want this. I think I belong in this project. Mm-hmm. I've worked hard on the audition. If they don't want me, I'm all right. Yeah. Got it. Other things going on. Yeah, and so the the absence of desperation exactly yeah was just helpful in allowing me to be in rooms with decision oh, yeah. makers totally and have them not um, have them think okay this is a confident person hmm. who's right for the part and maybe we want them around. Yeah. You've been on the other side of it. You've cast your stuff, too. Mm -hmm. So you know both sides of the audition table. And you know you have audition advice, I know, (laughs) of like, yeah, don't come off desperate. Own the room. Become like you want to be the kind of person who these people want to work with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think most actors are actually very good at this. I've met... Hmm. I mean, there have been a few outliers who don't do this. But what I always appreciate in actors, and I think in New York, most actors are like this, uh, and L.A., it's, it's, it's coming into a room and understanding that actually the director wants you to be the person whom they hire. Yeah. They want you to get it. Yes. Yeah. That's great. And... If I had been able to internalize that early on, mm. um, I maybe wouldn't have spent uh, <laughs> 10 years in virtual obscurity because I, sp- I wasted a lot of time fretting. Yeah. And I mm. remember one time I went into this audition. I was so right for this part. It was very early on. And I was so anxious. And, and, mm. and the, the, the auditioner said uh, – or the director said uh, – are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm just, oh. I'm really nervous. Yeah. And then I... And then you did the thing. And I was nervous, and it just it never went anywhere. And I I discussed that with my agent, and my agent said, well, why did you say that? I said, I was just being honest. <laughs> yeah, And confessing. he said, yeah, not useful. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's good advice, actually. That's why... You persevere because eventually you aren't nervous anymore. Sure. Yeah, it's a muscle you work. Right. right? Yeah. That's excellent advice. Um, I have to. We have to wrap soon. But um, do you have any other parting words of wisdom for working actors? I feel like we talked. We talked. I love this idea of the when you're 25, you have this ideal of what you want from from the acting industry, and that can change depending on the level of success. So. I mean, what would you say to, yeah, what would you say to actors at any level of success, I suppose? It's different, really. Uh, it's different from actor to actor, and I think mm. 
people of color versus white um, sure. uh, men and women. Yeah. I, um, and so I just I wouldn't want to be irresponsible in what I have to say. Uh, mm-hmm. I can speak to my own experience, yeah. which is that you know as a a very lucky guy um, who uh, has had more of a career than I ever imagined I would, um, hmm. but who therefore thinks that anybody can have a a career because I don't. Sure. I honestly think I'm starting to understand how to work as an actor on on screen, mm-hmm. and I'm getting better at it. But I still have a huge amount to learn. That's so great. Yeah. Um, and I'm way beyond where I ever thought I would be. Hmm. Uh, but it, but to me, it means that that with perseverance. Hmm. And very, very, very thick skin. It's possible, really, for anyone who takes themselves, their talent, and a zeal for getting better Mm. very seriously. Mm -hmm. Now, without that stuff, I would urge anyone just to pursue something else. Gotcha. Yeah. (laughs) That's great advice. Yeah. Um, But... Perseverance and a very, very, very thick skin. Very thick skin and a zeal about self-improvement, self-criticism. Totally. uh, And, 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 you know, a real rigor with the Mm. work and not wasting that opportunity when it comes to you. Mm. Yeah. Those are the ingredients. Those are the ingredients in the stew. (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> that was great. Um, thank you, Tim, for joining us. It's been my pleasure. I'm a big fan of Backstage and have been since I graduated from drama school. Yay! Good. Back yeah. when it was only a paper rag. In the Envelope, an awards podcast, is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Gross Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to podcast producer extraordinaire Jamie Muffet and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse In The Envelope.